This is Respecting Health. Hi, I'm Rod Pahovsky. Well, I hope you're well, and I hope you've also been taking some moments to look at the world around you and notice something you've never seen before. It's always good for us. Something good, something amazing, something that helps you rethink and maybe create a new sense of respect for something or someone. When we respect ourselves and each other and the planet, the health of everyone and everything improves. And that's what we're all about here. I actually took some action in the past week or so on something that had been in my head for a while. I kept thinking about a friend of mine from way back uh, in my military days. We lost touch after um, we were discharged from the service, went our separate ways. And, you know, time flies and next thing you know, we haven't spoken for over 40 years. And, um, you know, I, I get these things in my head. How's he doing? I wonder what he's up to. So I looked him up. I actually found him and gave him a call. We talked for a good time, and it really felt good to hear his voice and his laugh again. It was a nice reconnection. And I told him that. We caught up on our lives, and even though a lot of time had passed since we last spoke, it kind of felt like it really hadn't. Time is so weird. It's all we have. Time. And I really hope we stay in touch, and I hope I can continue to learn from this man. On this episode, I have a really interesting guest, and this one's going to be all about being a caregiver, aging, and dementia, and I have a couple of other things to go over that I wanted to share with you first before we get to that. First, uh, the family of Henrietta Lacks and the Thermo Fisher Organization have agreed to settle a suit that was filed by her estate. And they didn't release any details, but according to the press release, both parties are, quote, pleased that they were able to find a way to resolve the matter outside of court and will have no further comment about the settlement. This is really, really good news, and it's about time. If you're not familiar with it, the story of Henrietta Lacks, this goes back over 70 years when her cervical cancer cells were removed without her consent and then subsequently used and sold for research. Now today, we are, or should be asked, if we consent to research on any tissues taken from our bodies, the unique thing about Henrietta's cells is that they never die. They continue to reproduce. So they're a, a, a really good resource for researchers. And they've modified them over the years, and they sell them in various uh, configurations. They have found their way into the research community over the years, and uh, they've been used countless times. And they've actually been used to benefit um, all of humanity, actually, um, with some uh, amazing products and uh, developments in the study of cancer. But the, the, the Henrietta Lacks family received no compensation for this. And through the cells, Henrietta is still, in a way, alive to this day. You can get the whole story on this in this really excellent book by Rebecca Sklut. I think she wrote it in 2010 or 2011, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. It's a great read, uh, kind of emotionally gripping and very eye-opening about how things work. And there's also a good summary of this story uh, in Nature. I'll put a link to that. The second thing I wanted to note is an opinion piece in the Journal of the American Medical Association called The Paradoxical Decline of Geriatric Medicine as a Profession. Dr. Jerry Gerwitz says that as of 2022, there are only 7,413 board-certified geriatricians in the U.S., with that number falling from the year 2000 total of 10,270. And while lower compensation might be a part of this picture, Gerwitz also points to attitudes about older adults and the influence that has on choice of specialties by medical students and residents. It's really just another example of the underlying values that have health consequences, as we always discuss in this podcast. 
the population of older people around the world will continue to grow. And in the U.S., the growth will be enormous. In fact, uh, the, the global financial burden is estimated to be $1.3 trillion in uh, 2019 and projected to grow to $2.8 trillion in 2030. And that's specific to dementia. And that's just one part of being older, since it seems to affect uh, the majority of people who suffer from that disease are um, over 60, 65. Now, Gerwitz also says that um, gerontology is actually pretty cool because you get to work with these really complex combinations of conditions. And he says in this article that gerontology also places a special emphasis on the interdisciplinary team care for complex older patients and the needs of family caregivers. And conveniently, that is a perfect segue into my feature interview. Marianne Sterling is a subject matter expert and advocate in the Alzheimer's disease community. She supported multiple parents with dementia And she often meets with policymakers, speaks at conferences where she emphasizes the unmet needs of family caregivers. Marianne also serves as a patient research partner and an ambassador for the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. As a member of the steering committee for the iConquer MS Caregivers and the Barrel Institute's Global Patient and and Family Advisory Board, She's also an EVP of caregiver experience at tech startup LivePack, LivePact, with a T, and does all this while working on her master's in public health at George Washington University. That's coming up in this episode. So again, we're talking about aging, dementia, and we'll be talking a lot about the role of and the health of family caregivers. And that's coming up in just a moment. Hi, Marianne. Thank you for joining us here on Respecting Health. Well, thank you for having me. Well, we have a lot to cover today, and uh, I know your background is in Alzheimer's and home care issues and a lot of other things, um, as well as information technology. But I wanted to kind of start with this idea of maybe you could give us a real quick overview of um, what the current state is in the world of Alzheimer's and dementia care right now? Oh, I'd be happy to. Uh, On the the positive side, uh, there certainly are many medical innovations uh, coming down the pike. We have close to 100 uh, different drugs in the pipeline right now, which is a far cry from where we were even 10 years ago. Uh, Some of those medications now have made their way uh, and are going through the FDA approval process. Uh, Some of them very promising. Um, There's also controversy associated uh, with uh, those approvals. Um, You may have heard of the drug Adahelm that was approved last year by the FDA uh, to a very uh, controversial rollout. I'm not sure where that's going to go. Um, Unfortunately, our friends at CMS, uh, that's Medicare and Medicaid, uh, do not want to cover uh, that particular drug and have said no (laughs) to doing so uh, for for many reasons. Um, But I I urge folks to have patience as uh, some of these uh, new drugs work their way through the approval process. Um, let's let's do this in an orderly fashion and uh, try to get uh, the best possible treatments uh, to our loved ones with Alzheimer's as quickly as we can. Um, I think I, I echo uh, the sentiments of so many families when I say, do not give us false hope. Uh, the the worst possible thing uh, that these uh, pharmaceutical companies can do is to try to push through uh, medications and treatments, other treatments that um, 
are, are only effective in a, a small percentage uh, of our loved ones with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Perhaps they're uh, minimally affected for a short period of time and the disease progresses anyway. Uh, so there, there's a lot to think about uh, when, when you talk about uh, Alzheimer's uh, drugs and, and a progress uh, in, in the scientific realm. Yes, and it's uh, challenging, I think, for people to understand, too, that some of the drugs are designed to slow the progress. Others um, may, you know, and I think the expectation is that uh, we'll see a reversal and not everything you know, can be expected to do that either. So um, the expectation versus um, the information that's coming out and you hear an announcement that there's this drug that has a lot of promise and then they say, no, we're not going to cover it, that just further confuses the whole thing and makes uh, the family situation all the more challenging. It's very confusing. And you're talking about a community, the Alzheimer's and greater dementia community, that has had very little uh, to be excited about uh, where science is concerned for years. Um, when I first became uh, a caregiver, it was because my dad had vascular dementia. And in those days, uh, the only thing uh, that we had was, um, those were the early days of Aricept. Uh, and even before that, uh, I was caregiving for someone uh, who had a disease that few understood uh, the healthcare system didn't know what to do with him when he needed to be uh, hospitalized. Um, it, it's really for for family caregivers and those struggling with the disease. Uh, it's really been a black hole for so long. Uh, I, I, for one, am I guess I want to say cautious when when I hear about exciting new treatments and pharmaceuticals coming down the pike. I'm very cautious. Uh, I, I don't want to be, um, uh, you know, disappointed again, uh, as our families have been on on so many occasions. It's an exciting time where the science of the brain is concerned, uh, but at the same time, I think cautious optimism is kind of um, where I have put um, my focus at the moment. And in the meantime, families still have to deal with this on a daily basis. Uh, and the pharmaceutical approach is just one angle, right? And there are other things that can be done or that they say can be done to either forestall the onset of these types of um, diseases. But, you know, what do people do? What do people do in the meantime? And how does that affect uh, the family dynamic and the caregiver dynamic. And, and that's kind of where I would love to go a little bit, if you don't mind, uh, talking about what it's really like and uh, what this experience is uh, to, to do this caregiving. You know, the, the toughest challenge for me, um, having had three parents with dementia, different types of dementia, but three parents, um, both of my parents and my father-in-law, the biggest challenge has been the lack of support uh, in my home, right? So we hear um, big, big, big hopes around home and community-based services being available uh, to everybody. Uh, CMS certainly has made strides in trying to cover home and community-based services uh, for our loved ones. Uh, who have Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Unfortunately, I'm not seeing that translated from uh, regulation and policy to boots on the ground uh, in our communities. Um, some communities have more resources than others, and that's part of the challenge. There's no consistency. Uh, Medicare, of course, um, is a is a national program run at the federal level. Medicaid, oh well, we have fifty six different versions of Medicaid, uh, fifty states, the district, and five territories. So fifty six different versions of the rules for uh, Medicaid covered services uh, across our country. Uh, this is painful for families. Uh, a lot of states did not take the Medicaid expansion. 
And what people don't understand is this is critical for Alzheimer's families. Nursing home care, long-term care as a whole is covered by Medicaid, not Medicare, but Medicaid. So the amount of red tape that we have to go through to get our loved one into a Medicaid bed in a long-term care facility is, is insane. Uh, and, and it's not just the paperwork, it's understanding all of the rules that get you from, okay, I, I cannot care for my loved one in my home any longer. The disease has progressed to that stage. I can't afford to pay for home-based care anymore, home care workers. So my only other choice, sadly, is a long-term care facility. I say sadly because our long-term care facilities, Rod, do not have the greatest reputation in our country. And they're covered only by Medicaid. So Alzheimer's families have that choice right now. And that's about it. It is extraordinarily difficult for families to care for someone in advancing stages of Alzheimer's disease in their home. It is, I can tell you as an adult daughter, a crushing amount of responsibility. It is physically, emotionally, mentally draining. It takes everything you have. So the idea that family caregivers can work a full-time job and take care of someone with Alzheimer's disease or other form of dementia in their home is nuts, frankly. Yeah. I became a caregiver when I was 30 years old. That's when the official clock ticks because my parents moved into my home. I was 30. So my peers were getting married, having kids, getting master's degrees. And my parents moved into my home because my mom could not care for my father anymore by herself. So that kind of responsibility at the age of 30, I may have been an outlier in December of 1996 when they moved into my home. But that is more often the norm today, right? As the numbers of people who have Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia ticks up, it is adult daughters and sons who are bearing the brunt of, of caregiving in our country at this point. So, you know, th there's supposed to be resources in place to help us. And if you ask, uh, if you ask CMS, they'll they'll start going down the list of things that are available to you. And when you go through that same list, you start putting X's next to them because you don't qualify. You make too much money. You make too little money. Um, you know, you, your 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 parent um, isn't sick enough yet. So there's so many roadblocks and barriers to getting the, the care and services that you need in your home. On the positive side, these days we have home delivered groceries. We can get our, our uh, prescriptions delivered to our homes uh, in many, many areas uh, in the United States right now. So things are getting a tiny bit better uh, for family caregivers, but it is in fact baby steps compared to what the support that we need to help us carry on day to day, continue to work and provide for our families while at the same time provi providing the best care that we can for our aging parents and loved ones. And we're not all trained to provide that kind of care. We're just shy of four years having my mother-in-law live with us. And um, it does not get better every day. And I watch the toll that it takes on my wife. And it's really, really challenging um, knowing that there's, I, I'm, not, I'm not trained in this kind of stuff. Ne none, neither of us are. And yet, to your point about 
what kind of help is out there. Um, it's, it's kind of amorphous and almost a puzzle. You know, how do you figure it out? And it, you almost, ha- this, you're, you're, the person you're caring for has to become almost detached from themselves, from the family, from their finances. They have to be nearly destitute in order to qualify for some of this stuff. And it, to me, just doesn't seem humanitarian <laughs> the way we do this. It's not. It's not. And I'm right there with you. I was a caregiver for several decades, and that was in my house, in long-term care facilities, uh, at short distances, long distances. I experienced all of it. And um, you're right. There's no instruction manual that, that comes with, with this responsibility. Um, and, and I will say the, the caregiver, the impacts to the caregiver are so overlooked. I, I had people for years say, oh, bless your heart for caregiving for my parents. Well, bless your heart isn't getting the job done, right? Yeah. Uh, it's certainly not. Uh, getting me the uh, services and and, and uh, supports that I need as a caregiver to care for my parents, um, and these challenges that we face as caregivers—physical, emotional, mental, social, financial—these um, are all permanent. Okay, these challenges don't go away. When your caregiving situation ends, okay, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. The financial hit you take is permanent. Right. The impacts to your health, I can vouch for this, are permanent. Uh, There is no sort of uh, post-caregiving for many of us. Um, And I, I think that's something that we don't, talk enough about. Yeah, I wanted to ask you how you know what how do you how do you recover from this? What's what is the after you know what is the post caregiving life like? How do you restore who you are? And and this is all this is one of the things that we talk about all the time is there's this real fine line between trying to do the right thing for someone you love and trying to maintain your health and your well being at the cost of it sounding selfish as opposed to selfless. Does that make sense? It does. And a lesson I learned along the way, you cannot care for those who depend on you unless you are taking care of yourself. But that's, that's a loaded phrase mm-hmm. though. Um, as caregivers, we need to be doing everything right in order to stay healthy, more so than non-caregivers. We need to be eating right, getting enough sleep, getting movement and exercise. When? Thank you, that's exactly the question. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I say these things now as a former caregiver, did I do those things when I was caregiving? No, no, because I didn't have any help. I didn't have support. I'm an only child. There was nobody else to take on this burden. I was it. So no, I didn't I didn't do all the things I was supposed to do to stay healthy when I was a caregiver. And you asked me about post-caregiving, what happens afterward? Um, it's complicated. And I think for everybody a little bit different, um, my health suffered tremendously. I did not even know that until my mom passed away in 2016. And my time as a formal caregiver uh, for her was, had come to an end. Um, I have several health issues that linger today that sprung up in the year or so after she passed. Um, The financial impacts 
we're, my husband and I are still recovering from today. We're lucky enough that we're young enough still that we can make up some of that financial impact. Um, I'll be working until I'm 110, mm, yeah. uh, just to be clear on that. <laughs> uh, but I struggle with the residual impacts of caregiving. Uh, even today, uh, I have turned that struggle into advocacy. So for several decades now, actually I'm celebrating 25 years as an advocate in the Alzheimer's community. Um, that means that I not only talk to legislators on Capitol Hill about issues and legislation that matter to Alzheimer's families, uh, but I serve on an endless supply of boards, committees, working groups, all looking at how to improve the experience of family caregivers and bring support and resources to them in a more timely fashion. Uh, but also, how do we transform healthcare to be not only uh, better for us as patients, but better for us as family caregivers? Uh, I, my biggest struggle uh, as a caregiver was typically when I was interfacing with the healthcare system on behalf of my parents. Um, I was dismissed as nothing more than a um, nosy, loud family family member We've <laughs> who, experienced who really that. was just a, a pest right. <laughs> rather than a, a person who had a treasure trove of information uh, to share with uh, both the healthcare system, the research community, um, policymakers. Uh, so I continue to this day to work toward uh, a, a, a day when we have um, a better policy, um, more inclusive research, um, certainly a, a healthcare system that is more patient and family centric than it is today. So when you when you think about that question, improving the situation or bettering healthcare for this situation, what do you tell policymakers? What what should be done? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, today, um, a lot of the focus with policymakers again is wrapped around home and community-based services, making sure that uh, our communities have the resources they need uh, and those resources get to our doorstep. And for me, that has been a huge, I don't even know what the word is. It's been a huge fail for the past 25 years that I've been doing this. People not listening? Well, there's been a lot of focus, rightfully so, and a lot of money going towards Alzheimer's research. It has paid off. When I first started telling my story on Capitol Hill in 1997, the research budget at NIH was about $350 million for Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. Today, 2023, $3.8 billion. So the coordinated effort of advocates for the past 25 years has paid off when it comes to Alzheimer's research. Where it has not paid off and not translated into progress is helping to meet the needs of families each and every day. We want to keep our loved ones at home for as long as we can, for as long as we can, but that is impossible without a, a plan, more support. Uh, the good news is we now have a national strategy to support family caregivers, thanks to the Administration for Community Living. This is gonna serve as a roadmap moving forward but we have just, up until this came along, we have been stuck uh, in this vortex of 
services not being available. Our family doesn't qualify for those services that are available. Uh, you know, th- we haven't been able to get past this problem in the past 25 years. Uh, and of course, this is all, you know, has all become enormously political. Um, and sadly, when budgets are cut, be that the federal budget, state budgets, the first thing that gets cut are uh, health and human services. So all these services that we hear are out there for our families disappear, depending on the political climate. Okay, so I think the time is right to ask you the question that may or may not be harder than the last question. (laughs) (laughs) Depending. But the, the core of what I try to do through this podcast is talk about and think about what are the underlying societal values that have health implications? And it, it could be related to business. It could be related to politics or the environment. Have you, you know, and, and you're talking about political roadblocks and financial roadblocks and things like that and even, you know, uh, scientific advancements. But do you have any thoughts on way down deep, in society, what are we valuing at the expense of progress? I truly believe that a society is judged on how they treat their most vulnerable. And we are failing that right now. Our loved ones with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia uh, are certainly some of the most vulnerable. Uh, citizens in our country, and we are failing them each and every day. Uh, You know, I I am firm in the knowledge that the science is catching up Uh, with enough focus and enough money. uh, We're going to solve that problem. Look how quickly we came up with a vaccine for COVID-19. Right, exactly. A great example. But where we're failing is in supporting families today. Supporting families today, because today an adult daughter is gonna wake up and it's gonna be Groundhog Day for her because depending on her situation at home uh, with her, the parent she's caring for, uh, perhaps a grandparent, um, she may or may not be able to go to work today because perhaps her home care worker didn't show up. Uh, Maybe she's not feeling well because of the stress of what she's having to do each and every day. So if she can't go to work for one of those reasons, she doesn't get paid. And it becomes even harder to do the dual role of being a caregiver and a productive member of society than it was yesterday. So every day there are adult daughters waking up, having to make these sorts of choices. And it is more often than not daughters. More often than not daughters. I have to give a shout out though, to you and to other uh, male caregivers, my husband, has had to uh, provide uh, care uh, as well for for various family members uh, uh, support and he's amazing at that so uh, more and more men are taking on these roles and they have some of the same decisions to make right can i go to work today did my home care worker show up nope okay i'm not going to work today can i work from home for some people, yes. For some people, no. Gee, um, how's my 401k how, doing? <laughs> how's my 401k doing? Uh, n- not particularly well these days. Uh, but, you know, it, this this is a complex problem. 
And unfortunately, we've never really addressed it as a complex problem. And this is, this is not a this is not a black and white issue. This is not oh well, um, you know, if we just provide A, B, and C, uh, then caregivers can function better. Well, caregiving is it evolves. It's evergreening. So your situation today is not going to be your situation tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. It's going to change. So I think this is where the wheels fall off um, for communities that perhaps have limited resources. Um, they don't they don't have, um, especially rural communities, rural communities do not have the uh, the same resources as our urban centers um, and, and they struggle and the need is so great. So, you know, this, this is a multi-pronged problem and here's the adult daughter or son, you know, waking up in the morning trying to figure out what their day is going to be based on their caregiving situation. And those, they seldom have answers uh, you know, they're, they're really, we're all trying to jimmy rig solutions um, day to day without really having any concrete support. Trying to plan anything is very, very challenging, uh, even in the short term. You know, what are we going to do this morning? What do we need to do this afternoon? What are we doing next Tuesday? When do I need to start preparing uh, mom to go to the doctor on Tuesday, uh, which is a process that starts on Saturday and, yeah. and then takes pretty much all of Tuesday. And you might wake up on Monday and have a completely new situation on your hands. To your point, it will change. And it changes in ways that you do not expect and cannot anticipate. You know, it sure what, does. What, watching and, the brain change is... I wish I knew more about it so I could put words to it, but just watching the the different functions that we take for granted fail and the result that that has is, is really, um, it, it's fascinating and really sad. It's and, devastating. And, yeah, it's very To watch your loved one go through this, this yep. um, evil disease. And at the same time, it's impossible to keep even the most understanding employer happy because even if you show up every day <laughs> crises are going to happen right so you may have a we'll call it a good week this week where everything's going right at home with your caregiving situation you can go to work whatever that means for you whether it's uh, from home or uh, outside the home and then next week everything can change in an instant from a fall uh, from a, a another chronic condition uh, that your loved one has uh, things can change in an instant and all of a sudden you have your loved one is in the hospital or at the doctor's office or in, in some other situation where you cannot be in the workplace. You have to be um, side by side supporting the person you care for. This is so fluid and so dynamic that, again, even the most understanding employer is is not going to stick by you long term so i ask this of a lot of my guests how since the the before this situation and the after this situation how have you changed how are you a different person because of these experiences i am a lot less trusting of the healthcare system on a personal note, I will add that uh, I have cut out a great deal of preventive care because I do not trust the healthcare system, which is sad. Uh, our healthcare system, like any other profession in our country, uh, has uh, a lot of good people, 
It also has some bad people. And unfortunately, the bad people ruin it for all. I am much more now. Uh, I have been forced to focus on my health and make that a priority. Uh, so that is that is a change for me. Uh, I am more focused on um, my relationship with my spouse. Uh, I am focused on fixing uh, some things that I gave up along the way. So I've just started graduate school at the ripe old age of 56. That's great. Uh, <laughs> because I, that's what I gave up. That's what I gave up to care for my parents. And I'm fortunate enough that I can go revisit that now, um, which I never thought I'd be able to do. Um, I'm also keenly aware of time and how much of it I've lost. So yes, each and every day now is so important to me uh, to, to get up and, and experience and, um, and participate in each and every day like I don't have too many of them left, but that is a, a leftover from, from caregiving. Right. Right. And, and just, just from the fact that um, I feel like I lost so much time, right? There are years that I don't remember and it has nothing to do with <laughs> dementia. It, it's just the all consuming role um, that you play as a caregiver, um, you know, it, it's to the detriment of everything else in your life for, for many of us, especially I might add those of us in long duration, high intensity caregiving situations. And I really count three groups of people, uh, who, who qualify under that, uh, label, Certainly, those of us dealing with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, caregivers who have uh, veteran spouses who will require um, decades of care if they're injured in war and conflict, and the third, parents dealing with special needs kids who then become special needs adults. These three groups, three groups of people uh, need support the most as caregivers because they're going to be doing it for years, if not decades of their lives. And we're, we're asking what we're asking caregivers to do as a society is give up their lives to provide care when we need to be looking at it in a different way. We need to be looking at it and thinking, well, how can we keep our caregivers productive members of society? How can we support them so that they continue to be productive members of society? Because in the end, it's what we're losing that is so sad, right? Men and especially women who give up their careers uh, to be caregivers, one of them might have found a cure for Alzheimer's, just some other disease, right? Yeah. Uh, one of them um, may have been a Nobel laureate. <laughs> one of them may have figured out uh, the next uh, the, the next great advancement in feeding the 8 billion people on this planet, you know, we don't know what they may have accomplished if we had just provided them support in their caregiving role so that they could continue in whatever, um, whatever destination they were meant to have as a productive member of society. So one person in a sense takes others with them out of society. Yes. 
It, yes. it, it's and not just an individual issue. This this has collateral damage. And it's generational in nature. Mm-hmm. My mom was the primary caregiver to for my dad until she could no longer uh, do that by herself. She needed my help. Okay. So Alzheimer's disease wiped out her finances. They in turn then wiped out mine. This, this turns into, you see where this is going. Right. This turns into uh, a multi-generational challenge. You know, this just this does not stop with the person who has Alzheimer's disease and perhaps their their spouse or or their it, it just keeps going. So trying to make up for what the disease has has cost you is a gift that keeps on giving. Well, thank you very much for sharing all that. Um, that was really thoughtful, uh, and I and I appreciate that. I I also know that uh, you and I have spoken, and you're planning on. Um, putting together your own podcast and and you want to talk about this kind of topic. Could you share with my audience what you're doing and what you're hoping to achieve and and the idea behind it all? Uh, my podcast is called Us Versus Them, Patients and Caregivers Confront Healthcare. Uh, we are under the umbrella of the Whole Care Network. Um, the idea really is to give ordinary people the opportunity to tell their stories, how they confronted difficult situations while dealing with our healthcare system, learn important lessons from them, and become informed advocates for change. I want to talk about tough topics that don't get enough attention and look at them through a different lens. We're going to talk about gender bias in healthcare, frontotemporal dementia, otherwise known as FTD, chronic pain, caregiver burnout, and more. All the things that nobody really wants to talk about. We're going we're gonna to have some really dense discussions about these things. And I want to challenge the healthcare system to do better, to learn from people with lived experience and work with us as partners in transforming healthcare. I look forward to that. I, I can't wait to hear that you're live. Marianne Sterling is a subject matter expert and advocate in the Alzheimer's disease community, and she was kind enough to join us today on this episode of Respecting Health to talk about that experience and what's going on and and talk about values and, and her upcoming podcast to get in even deeper into the patient experience. So thank you very much, Marianne. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rod. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, that was a great conversation. What do we, what do we take away from this? I, I, for one, continue to wonder that if, if we really do care about the elderly population, and for that matter, the entire human life cycle, why do some cultures respect and embrace their elders while others seem to cast them aside? I don't get it. Marianne was really generous, too, in sharing her personal experiences related to how caregivers are treated by the medical community. And as caregivers, we're the ones with all the knowledge of the patient's daily behavior and whatever routines they may or may not have. And really, I think those insights should be welcomed by medical professionals And as in the story about the declining number of gerontologists that I shared at the outset of the episode, we have to start looking at the bigger picture, the really big picture when it comes to life and health. And all of these things kind of build into and fuel the growing distrust 
in the healthcare system that Marianne spoke of. Caregiving can have truly devastating effects on the physical, mental, and financial health of the caregiver. It is exhausting. It has social implications. I know of one situation in which an individual in a leadership role at a company said to other employees that they would never again hire anyone who had elderly parents because, you know, those people have lives and other obligations. And as Marianne was talking about, you know, you can't always show up for work. You have to make changes in your life in order to do the caregiving. So think about what kind of a person says these kinds of things, that they would never hire anybody with elderly parents. And think about that person's values and their lack of empathy and their moral emptiness and the role that that plays in the health of employees and their stress level and their level of guilt and their uncertainty about their employment situation, all because they're trying to do the right thing for those they love and that they have made a commitment to care for. People are affected by social, environmental, and commercial influences over a lifetime. And by the time someone displays any signs of cognitive decline, it's... Um, Often such a complicated part of the individual's fabric, it's impossible to separate symptoms from causes. The thread from the dye, the color from the design. We have to start by respecting the entirety of the human experience. Holistic and multidisciplinary care are good ideas, but please, let's include caregivers as part of the care team. Now, if we expand that kind of thinking to include considering health consequences connected to all human endeavor, from the birth of a human to the birth of a product or an infrastructure project. We prioritize health as a core societal value. Think of it as healthy by design. And it works for the planet, too. Once again, I'd really like to thank my guest, Marianne Sterling, caregiver advocate and subject matter expert in the Alzheimer's disease community, for sharing her insights and personal experiences for this episode of Respecting Health. If you have any comments you'd like to share or a guest you'd like to hear from, you can contact us by email at feedback at respectinghealth.com, and you can also leave comments on our website, respectinghealth.com. And a big thanks, as always, to Adam Bazer for your critical ear and your helpful suggestions. I do implement them. I'm Rod Pahovsky. Join me again for the next episode of Respecting Health, when we respect ourselves, each other, and the planet, the health of everyone and everything improves. <laughs>